right, good morning, everybody. Like I told you a second ago, uh, my name is Ronnie. Uh, the earlier thing about Rob at NASCAR, that wasn't a NASCAR joke or a Rob joke. That was more of just a very different from what we're doing here this morning kind of joke, just to throw it out there. NASCAR is great. I don't know a ton about it. Rob's great. Love him. He'll be back next week. Just wanted to clear that up just in case. Uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter 7 this morning. Why don't you guys grab your Bibles? Uh, if you are new to, to Doxa, we've been going through a series of Romans chapters 5 through 8. And maybe you're here and you haven't even read that much of the Bible before. That is, that is great. Like We're just going to basically look at chapter, or verses 7 through 25 in Romans chapter 7 for, for our message today. And so while you're turning there, the question that we're obviously all asking, especially those that are sitting more to the front, is what is the temperature of this room right now? Okay, so I'm just going to tell you, so you don't have to, to wonder, it is now set to 66 degrees, okay? It was, at, it was at 68, there's like two thermostats back there, it's climbing down. Just so you know, I was changing it around during the worship set, so you don't have to wonder what it is, okay? All right, Romans chapter 7. Uh, last week ended with us just kind of really, really clarifying what, it, what exactly it is that God has, has done for us. Um, and it's something that Romans chapter 5 and 6 had been driving towards, and it's simply this. We've been released from our relationship with the law, and we now belong to God by grace. Okay, we've been released from this, from this way of relating to God that is based on our performance and what we bring to the table, and now our standing before God is based on what Jesus brought to the table at the cross, which was paying for our sins and then giving us his, his perfect record. So we no longer relate to God based on what we do or can do, but based on what Jesus has done. That's just a, a quick summary of what had been going on. If that is like new information to you or you're, or you're still like wrestling with what exactly does that mean, go back and look at chapters 5 and 6 of, of Romans. Go back and listen to, to one of the messages. But one of the things that got brought up last week in verse 6 was this. It says, now... We are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we now serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So this language of being released from the law, and David, he kind of raised the question last week, of like, so, so is the problem with, with the law then? Like, like there, it seems to be that in Romans chapter 5 and 6, every time that sin is talked about, it's somehow in this relationship with the law. And that's where Paul is going today in verse Seven, as he asks this question, Romans chapter seven, verse seven, what shall we then say? Is the law sin? There's this relationship between the law and sin that Paul has been driving at. And so to put it another way, is the law the problem? Is, is what God has revealed to us in the Bible about himself and how we're to live? Like is, since every time we talk about this, we talk about sin, is, is this the problem? And the answer that was started last week and that we're really gonna continue today is, is no, it's actually us that's the problem. We are the problem. The problem isn't with God or his law. The reason that sin pops up every time we talk about the law is because the other variable that's there is me, and it's you. We are the problem. We are the ones that are sinning. And so the question that we're just kind of asking week after week in this series is, okay, then, so, so how do we then change? If the problem is us, if it's me, not even just what I do, but like me, then how do we change? And underneath the question in verse 7, what then shall we say, is it the law that is sin? There's something that, that we all tend to do that really is like a big roadblock to change in our lives, and it's this. When it comes to sin, we tend to, to minimize it or blame shift it. 
Okay, so we, we, we tend to minimize our sin. We say, you know, it's really not that bad, this, this thing that's sin. It's not that I'm arrogant, I'm just confident, right? You got something like that in your life where it's like the line's a little blurry. I'm not, I'm not arrogant, sinful, I'm just, I'm just confident. We, we minimize it. Or we push it off and we say, it's, it's really not my fault. The reason that I'm, you know, I'm not, it's not that I'm greedy, it's just that my life circumstances and the way that things have kind of played out for me have, have prevented me from being generous. Do you, do you see that? I'm, I'm not greedy. I would totally be generous, but just kind of the way my life is working out. So we, we blame shift and we, we put off our sin. That's what's kind of underneath the question of like, well, so, so is the problem with the law? No, the problem with, is with us. And one key reason that we don't change, which is what we're going to dive in today, is that we don't face our sin as sin. We don't face it as sin. We minimize it to something else. And we don't, we don't face it as, as our sin. We, we avoid it and we, we blame shift it. So if you're here this morning and you came in and you want to change, you want to grow, what Paul is going to do in Romans 7 is he's going to say this. If you want to change, then you're going to have to follow me down a road that you really don't want to go on. We're going to have to go deep down to where we don't want to go. We're going to have to face our sin. And I'll be the first one to, to say to you, like, I don't want to do that. And I happen to be the one standing in front of you guys, like, talking about it. So maybe I'm in a little bit of a different situation. I don't want to do it. It hurts, and, and it should, because facing sin is hard. And let me just warn you of this. It's actually, it's actually a lot worse than we thought. So if we want to change, we've got to face our sin. Let's do that together, okay, as a community. Starting in, in verse 7 of chapter 7, here's the first thing we learn about sin. So what shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet it, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. Here's the first thing we've got to face about sin. We're not just imperfect. We are actually opposed to God. It's really common, and it's actually true to, to talk about sin in terms of brokenness or imperfection, like we're, we're not perfect. But, but the, the fuller truth of what sin is, is it's not just like an imperfection in us. It's actually us being absolutely opposed to God. Look back at what Paul said. He said, if it hadn't been for the law, if God hadn't kind of shown us the standard, we wouldn't have even known what sin is. So sin, it's like, it's, or the law, it's like an MRI machine that you, you go underneath it and it reveals to you your sickness. The law, it, it reveals God's character, it reveals how, how we're to relate to God, and then when we hold up the law in relation to our lives, it reveals that we have this, this sickness called sin and we, and we don't measure up. If it hadn't been for the law, we wouldn't have known sin. And what is sin? It is absolute defiance against God. Not just an imperfection. Normal life for humans is opposition to God, rebellion against God. He uses the example of, of coveting here, right? He says, if it hadn't been for the law, I wouldn't have even known what coveting was. And it's, it's kind of like a rhetorical thing where he's like, but now that I know what I'm not supposed to do, that's what I do, the exact, the exact opposite. Now that I know that I'm not supposed to covet, that's what I do. So let's, let's talk about this one just as an example of, of what our sin really is, coveting. Coveting is, is sin. It's looking at what other people have and what have other people have going for them, and we're, we're jealous for it. 
we're dissatisfied with our own lives and for what God has, has given us. And, and I, for one, this was actually the one that just was like spot on for me this year. I think that I have been truly like committing the sin of coveting a lot, a lot this year and calling it discouragement. So, so minimizing it. And the way it's played out for me is I've, just, I've looked around at other people that have like my, my similar job or in a similar stage of life, and I've, I've perceived them to be getting a greater blessing from God, just having kind of a better lot in life. And as I've looked at, at what they're doing, I've felt dissatisfied, I've felt jealous, I've felt competitive. And the most normal way that I've communicated about that to people around me is I feel discouraged. And discouragement's totally a real thing, but I haven't gone far enough to say, like, actually, the, the sin that is leading to that discouragement is this thing called coveting. And listen, coveting sounds so innocent, right? It's a total affront against God. What are we saying about God when we covet, when we're jealous, when we're competitive? We're saying, God, I know better what is best for my life than you do. More than that, I know better what's best for that other person's life than you do. God, you're, you're wrong. Like, you're, you're not giving me what I deserve. You're not enough. We minimize our sin and call it something like discouragement, or we look at them and say that they're, they're prideful. But guys, we, like, we got to face our sin and say, this is actually a direct assault on God and his character. Sin doesn't covet. You covet. I covet. We're not a victim here. We're actually a rebel picking a fight with God. So Paul here, he just kind of raises the bar on exactly what sin is, and it's far worse than we thought. But here's the next thing that he does. In verses 8 through 12, Paul's going to say, like, not, not only is sin worse than you thought, but you're, you're uh, affected by it. You're far more sinful than you ever thought. And here's what he's going to say. We aren't just affected by sin. We are infested with sin. Okay, let me show you what I mean. Verses, verses 8 through 12. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous, and good. The way that, that Paul talks about sin here is he talks about it like it's, it's a parasite. A parasite of the human heart. We're not just affected with it, like it's just this thing floating around on the outside, but we're, we're literally infected, infested with sin. It's far worse than we ever thought. Look back at how he talks about it. He talks about sin as if it's, it's inside of us, right? Just waiting. He says to seize an opportunity, to seize an opportunity to produce death in us. And what's, what's the trigger for sin? If sin's like a parasite in the heart, when does it really spring into action? What's the opportunity that it's seizing? It's when we see the law, right? When we see who God is, who we are, who we're called to be, sin, like a parasite in your heart, it, it seizes the opportunity and it produces death. This is, this is how sin works. So, as we face this, it's, it's as if like, you know, all right, so anybody ever had just like a stomach ache that you're starting to wonder where it came from? And you start to think through what it is that you've eaten, and you're like, okay, so I had this burrito yesterday from, from just a shady place, 
shady burrito place, and then you're feeling really nervous about it, so you decide to go get an MRI. I know that's escalated quickly, but you're, you're in the hospital now, you're getting an MRI, but you're, you're sure that like, you know, this is just a, a stomach ache caused by a burrito, right? Something that came from outside of you. You're sitting there in the, the MRI machine, and the doctor comes over and tells you what the MRI revealed. And you don't just have a simple stomach ache that's going to go away tomorrow. You are infested with worms. Okay, the, the power of that metaphor is, is actually meant to, to kind of be in line with what Paul is saying here with, with the, the text. It should be a little bit shocking for us. And that's what has to happen when we face our sin. You realize it's not just that there's like we have these bad behaviors that, that kind of come and go, like a bad burrito and a stomach ache and it's be gone. We have something internally wrong with us, an infestation, an infection. It's gross. It's nasty. It's, it's pervasive. This is how Paul's talking about sin. It's, it's lying in wait, waiting to seize an opportunity to kill us. And you see how he talks about how it works? He says it works through, through deception. Sin, it, it deceives us, and through it, it kills us. Look at this. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, it deceived me, and through it, it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. There's a movie that came out on Netflix this past year called Bird Box, and the, it's one of the, the apocalyptic, end-of-the-world type of movies. And in this particular movie, the way that they, they tell the story of like, why the world is going to destruction is there's basically these evil creatures that you don't, you don't see in the movie, so they're invisible. And what they do, the evil creatures, is they deceive people to see what, what is actually true and real and, and oftentimes very trustworthy and beautiful, just real life. So loved ones family members, just like the life that they see in front of them. As they're walking out in broad daylight, these, these evil creatures, they deceive them to now see good things as terrifying, untrustworthy, fear-inducing, and it, it leads them to destroy themselves and the world. So the way it works is through deception, and it's a deception that is ultimately meant to, to kill them. And the way the deception works is they see what is actually good and beautiful and true, as untrustworthy and worthy of, of fear. Guys, that's exactly how sin works. Isn't that exactly what, what Paul said? It deceives us, and through it, kills us. The law, the law is holy. God is holy. God is, is good. He's beautiful. Anything beautiful you like in this world came from the source, which is him. But what sin does, this internal problem that we have, is we look out at God, we look at his law, we look at his commandment, and rather than seeing it for as good and beautiful, which it is, which he is, we don't trust him. We see him and, and we, we are fearful, and it leads to destruction. It says sin is trying to kill us. We see God and we don't trust him. So guys, this is what sin is doing in your life right now. And it's far worse than we thought. Paul's asking us to face it. But now, if you're a Christian in the room, we're kind of looking back at this and saying, oh man, like, yes, like, I am so glad that that's in the past. Right? I'm so glad, like, sin, sin is bad, it was bad. I'm so glad that that's in the past. Look at, look at verse 13. He says, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin. It, it was sin, past tense, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through it, the commandment, it might become sinful beyond measure. 
Paul's like, yeah, it, it was sin. In Romans 5 through 6, Paul's been talking about sin. He's been absolutely dismantling it. Right? He says things like this. We have died to sin. How can we still live in it? We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So, so we've died to sin. We've been set free from enslavement. So as, as terrible as it is to have to face the sin of our past, the good news is in Jesus, we're set free from it. But then comes verse 14. Look at verse 14 with me. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. So now one of the things you guys are going to learn about me is I, I'm really bad with all the rules of grammar, but I did pick this one up. Did you notice that he's been talking in the past tense this whole time? He's been talking about sin as, as something that is terrible, but as something that is, has happened to him and that Jesus has overcome. But now the Apostle Paul, in verse 14, switches pronouns to the present pronoun. He says, I am of the flesh. I am sinful. I was sinful, and I am sinful. So we got to ask Paul, like, what is going on? In chapter 6, you said you were set, set free from slavery to sin, and now you're saying, I'm sold under sin. In chapter 6, you said you've been raised to a new life in Christ, and now he's going to start to say that he's, he's doing things that are very against his new life. And the, and the question is why? Like, did, did Paul, is Paul forgetting his theology here? Is he not applying the gospel right? Has Paul slipped into to something where he's now contradicting himself with the way he's living? Is he not living up to what he said? Some people have been so perplexed by this that they've thought, well, maybe Paul is talking about himself before he was a Christian. But at the most plain reading of this passage, the most widely held view is that what Paul is about to start describing is his current life as a Christian. And his current life as a Christian that is marked by struggle. Struggle being the key mark, actually, of the Christian life. So as we face our sin with Paul here in a second, here's the, the third thing that we learn as we face it. Christians aren't exempt from the misery of sin. We actually experience it the most. Listen to Paul in verses 14 through 24. Talk about his current experience with sin. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. So as shocking as it is to now hear, and just, just a, as a reminder, this is Paul who, he like wrote the Bible, right? He wrote major parts of the New Testament. This is Paul who wrote Romans chapter 5 and 6 about being set free from sin that we've just seen. This is Paul who, who in our church would be a model example of Christian character. 
shocking to hear him talk about his sin this way, but so refreshing to me to say, oh, you too. Wasn't the way he talked about his sin exactly the type of struggle that you're having and that you're feeling? He switches pronouns to talking about his life right now. The reason that we, we, struggle, we struggle with this is we have kind of like a, a wrong view of what it actually meant to become a Christian. Okay, so let me put it to you like this. When I was in college, I lived in one of those houses. Maybe some of you guys lived in one of those houses where we crammed like eight guys into it and there were only four bedrooms. I had one roommate who was from Pittsburgh that had like 10 friends from Pittsburgh that would just come and hang out for weeks at a time. It was a mess, right? It was a mess. It smelled really bad. It was just a, a disaster, like guys crammed into a college house, right? I remember when I was getting ready to marry Caitlin, my wife, like just being so excited to get to move out of that house and into like a brand new clean apartment, okay? I remember that. And when it comes to, to becoming a Christian, sometimes that's how we view it. It's like our old life of sin, it was, it was nasty, it was, it was in the past, but now with Jesus, we're united to him like a marriage, right? We saw that last week. And we're like basically gonna leave that old house behind and we're gonna move in with Jesus to a brand new clean apartment. There's some things in the Bible that would make you think that that's how it works. When we see Romans chapter 7, this is actually the picture of what it means to become a Christian. You don't leave your old college house and your old college roommates behind and move in with Jesus. He moves in with you guys. The house in this metaphor is, is your heart, okay? Jesus comes in and dwells in your heart. He moves into the house. And when he gets there, it's still a total mess. It smells terrible. It's dirty. And as you're standing there with Jesus, you're looking around at all of this, and you know it's not worthy for him. But here's the good news of the gospel. As Jesus looks around, you don't have to be embarrassed or ashamed for your past or for what you've done or for what is currently still there. He looks around and he forgives you. He's standing there in the living room with you and he looks around and he's, he's like, I forgive you. Do I, your impulse to be ashamed and embarrassed and to feel guilty is actually right, but I nailed that to the cross. When you see me being ashamed and embarrassed and crucified at the cross, take that as me telling you that you don't need to feel that anymore. So Jesus, he stands there in this just disaster of a heart that you still have, and he says, you're forgiven. The penalty of sin is wiped away. And then he says, your, your old roommates, like, they have no right to live here anymore, right? And so you're, you're starting to go, this is great. Like, I, you truly are starting a new life with Jesus, and as you stand there with Jesus, just basking in the glory of that truth, that like your, your old life, it truly has no rightful power over you. Jesus has like taken the rights to that building, which is your heart, and he lives there now, and he's not going anywhere. Right as you stand there with Jesus, you hear a noise stumbling down the stairs, and it's your roommate, and he runs down, and he hands you a beer and a video game controller, and then he throws up all over Jesus' feet. And reality hits. This roommate who has no right to be here is actually just still here. The fact that he's still there doesn't mean he should be. It just means that he is. And this is actually a better picture of what happens when you become a Christian. The power of sin, you're free from it. It is no longer your master. But the way that God saves us is he comes into our heart and our roommates and the nastiness and the smell still lives there. 
So now we have to fight the presence of sin. This is why in verse 21, this is why Paul says this, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. It's because evil is still there. Sin is still there. But here's the difference. In college, you, you kind of like didn't even notice the smell anymore, and you actually would look back on that and say, this was the college experience. This was great. Becoming a Christian is like you, you've now noticed how nasty your heart really was and you, wanted, you want to change and you notice the smell. And now as your roommate stumbles down the stairs and he hands you the beer and the video game controller, it's like you feel this weird tug of yes because that's how, who I used to be. But now no, that's not who I am anymore. And you look at Jesus and basically ask him, what are we going to do? My point is this, only a Christian only someone who Jesus has moved into your heart has this type of awareness of sin, which is new, and a hatred for sin. Only a Christian can say what Paul says when he says, wretched man that I am. He's feeling pain and sorrow looking back at his life of sin, especially since realizing that it's still there. So we as Christians of all people should be learning that we were always far worse than we thought. We are far worse than we thought. When we face our sin, we're, we're standing there in the living room with Jesus, and we're asking this question, okay, Jesus, how do we change? Because we now want to. And the answer to our question, it should, it should be obvious now. How do we change? We're never going to change if we don't face our sin. But it's not just facing our sin, it's facing our sin with Jesus standing there with us. How do you change? Some of you, the link in the chain of like why you're not changing is because you're not facing your sin. Some of you, the link in the chain is you're not facing your sin with Jesus. If you're here in the room tonight and you're, you're not a, a Christian or maybe you're confused about what that would even mean, you may be trying to, to face your sin without Jesus, meaning not even receiving forgiveness for it, not receiving the power that Jesus has to change it, and, the, and you can't do it. That's what the offer of the gospel for you is all about, is facing your sin, being forgiven from it, being freed from its power with Jesus. That's how we change. Deep down, where we don't want to go, listen, that's where Jesus meets us, when we face our sin. And that's where change begins. Now, Romans 8 next week, it's, it's ridiculous, guys. Like it's gonna, he's gonna, what Paul's going to do to finish out this series over the course of about four weeks, he's going to show us how Jesus kind of, he meets us in this place of just, of, of again, just the disaster college house, and he's going to take us all the way home to the point where we now are spotless and clean, actually, and the presence of sin no longer remains. That's where Romans 8 is going, but before we get there, the end of Romans 7, it just gives us really like three marks in Paul's life that show us just the beginning of change. And so let's look at these and just ask yourself, like, are these present in my life? And if they are, you're going to change. Okay? The first one is honesty. Honesty. Look back at, at verse 24 with me. It says, wretched man that I am. Wretched man that I am. Paul, he's, he's been honest with us this whole time as he's talked about his sin. He's called us to face our sin with honesty. And I'll be the first one to admit that I don't want to do this. I don't. I don't want to be honest about my sin because it feels like death. Does it feel like that to anybody else? 
feels like death, but let me just tell you something that I've learned. The, the death that you're feeling when you're honest and you're facing your sin is actually the death of a false image of yourself that you've been projecting to people. So it's, it's the good kind of death that Jesus talks about. So it should hurt. It should feel like death. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor in Germany during World War II, and he had a real concern that the church would be strong enough to stand against just the evil that was happening in the world, particularly what was happening uh, through the Nazi party. And he wrote this book called Life Together. And in Life Together, he has this interesting place where he basically says that without honesty in the church, there will be no breakthrough change. There will be no power in the church. Listen to what he says. The final breakthrough to fellowship does not occur because though they have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, they do not have fellowship as the undevout as sinners. No breakthrough, because when we kind of like look around this room, we look at each other, it's like, okay, you're, you're okay, I'm okay, we're all okay, all right, let's all just pretend we're okay. There will be no change. There will be no breakthrough. He goes on, he says, the pious fellowship, so pretending to be perfect, church, permits no one to be a sinner. You're just not allowed. So everybody must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. A real sinner snuck, like, snuck in the door, and we're all unthinkably horrified by that. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. The fact is, as we are sinners. Like, if, if there's something that you re remember me telling you today, like, we just read the words of Paul, you, you are as a Christian, you're forgiven from your sin. It has no more power over you, but you still are sinful. You still have this sinful nature warring against your new spiritual nature. If you're new, you're never going to sneak in the door, and we're never going to be horrified to find out what's wrong with your life. We are expecting that, and that would actually help us all be a little more honest about what's going on with us. Guys, we, we are sinners. The next step, though, to change, honesty, but then what does it lead to with Paul. Look at verse 25. So it says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's, that's verse 24, actually. Who will deliver me? Who will deliver me? Desperation. Honesty that leads to desperation. We tend to think that, that Jesus, he's going to meet us when we've shown ourselves to be sufficient, right? Like God helps those who help themselves, but no. Guys, God helps people that are desperate for his help. It's actually at the end of our rope that Jesus meets us. It doesn't work like that anywhere else in the world. Usually it's when we've figured it out, but no. The place that Jesus meets us with his power is at the end of our rope. And then we say, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's verse 25. It says, who will rescue me? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Bonhoeffer, he continues, and he says this. He says, guys, the gospel says this. You are a sinner, a great and desperate sinner. It's the first part of the gospel. The first part of the good news is that you are a sinner, a great and desperate sinner. How is that good news? Now come as the sinner that you are to the God who loves you. If you're a great and desperate sinner, now come. That's the, that's the move, that's the pivot of the gospel. 
It's facing our sin, which leads us to desperation, and then we hear Jesus say, now come to me as a sinner that you are. Why? It says he wants you as you are. The mask that you wear before men will do no good before me. I want you as you are. Why does God want us as we are? Why, why does God want to, to have fellowship with sinners? It's actually really obvious. It's in the way I've been talking about it. it listen, it's, it's because he wants to. That's, it's, it blows our mind. Like, God wants to save you, sinners. Jesus wants to move into that nasty house of your heart with you, not because you've earned it, not because you deserved it. We say, God, why would you do this? Why would you do this? And he says, stop, because I want to. That, that's what the word grace means. Grace, undeserved love, undeserved favor. I love you because I want to. God, God he, he wants you. He wants you as you are. And the way that this actually ends up making sense is now we look at the cross and we see what was really going on there. The cross was God saying, I want you. I'm sending my son to take your place to pay for your sin because sin really matters. We can't minimize it and we can't blame shift it. Someone has to bear the blame. Someone has to bear the full brunt. It is, sin is a very big deal, but because I want you, I'm going to have Jesus pay for you. Come as you are. But if you're not honest and desperate, you're never going to come and receive that offer from God. But if you are, God says, come as you are. And then Bonhoeffer finishes, he says this, because of the cross, you don't have to go on lying to yourself and others that you are without sin. You can dare to be a sinner. Thank God for that. You can dare to be a sinner in Doxa Church. Because we're all just looking at the cross. The cross before this church was ever started, we had the cross, and the cross told all of us that before anybody ever showed up, we were going to be sinful. The cross is this, it's this monument in history saying, this is what's wrong with humanity. This is, how, this is what it took to reconcile people back to God. I want you as you are. Come to me as a sinner. And change happens when we come. Now the last little piece, and this is where we'll close. Look at, look at verse 25, just the last half of it. So he, he reaches this point of desperation. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So Paul, he's, he's now looking out to some things he's going to explain in Romans chapter 8. But the third kind of just ingredient or, or, or uh, reality about you, if you want to change, is, is realism. A, a realistic view of what your life is going to be like, which is war. He says there's a war raging inside of you. You are truly forgiven since power has truly been defeated. But you're going to struggle with sin. And you need to have a realistic look. So he says, so then, I know I'm going to have this war. Like, like I'm going to obey God in my spirit, in my mind, he's going to explain that in Romans 8, but I know I'm going to be weighed down and drawn towards sin. And just in case we miss this, he's, he's talking to us as Christians, as Christians, who need to remember the gospel and apply it to ourselves. So guys, sin is far worse than we thought, far deeper than we thought. But when we face it, when we go there, when we get to the end of our rope, that's where Jesus is waiting for us. Waiting for us to get to work and change. We're going to see more of what that means in Romans 8. Let's pray.
Father, we, we come to you and even in our, in our quiet right now, God, it is so scary to face sin. But when we look at the cross, we see you inviting us in. God, invite us to face it. Whatever the, whatever the sin is right now that is weighing us down the most, God, I pray for your children in this room, Father, that you would just give them the assurance right now that it was nailed to the cross, wiped away. Wiped away by the blood of Jesus. And as we object to that, because we're ashamed, we're embarrassed, I pray that we would just see the bloody cross. We would see the lengths that you were willing to go to, to forgive us. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that we can live in honesty. Thank you that, that the, the core movement we need to make to change is desperation, not figuring things out. And I ask that, that this gospel would more and more shape us to, to be a community that is honest, a community that is, is desperate, a community that's moving forward, um, fighting the war on sin until you bring us all the way home.